In a couple of moments, we're going to continue our new series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, you're welcome to open up, or go and grab a Bible if you need one. There's a bunch on the table at the back. If you do not own a Bible, you're welcome to keep one of those. We're going to open up to Mark chapter 1, verse 9, which is page 1472 in the church Bibles. And we'll read from there momentarily. We are continuing our series, God Made Visible, about the, the portrait of Jesus in, in this particular gospel, the gospel of Mark. And I want to read to you from verse 9 to verse 15. It says this. This is our first introduction, actually, to Jesus when he walks onto the stage, as it were. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We heard about John last week, that prophetic, wild character who spoke truth to everyone, high and low alike, and baptized people and called them to commit themselves to God. And there's a strange sort of handing on the baton that happens here where John's ministry winds down. And he says in another gospel, I must decrease. But Jesus' ministry begins to wind up. And, he says, I'm, and John says of him, he must increase. And so we see this kind of handing over. John was just the forerunner. He was just preparing hearts. He was just preparing the ground for the arrival of Christ himself. So it says, Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is Jesus to us? What is Jesus for us? What do we need to know and understand about Jesus? And two of the main things are, first, of course, what you understand and what we've been seeing of, that he is our savior. And this is never going to be taken from the primary place and understanding of who Jesus is for us, that he is a savior, that he came, as was said in the prayer, as a kind of a hero for mankind, to liberate us, to change your life, actually, to come and absolutely transform you and work his, his wonderful, powerful presence into the darkest parts of your heart and bring about transformation in ways that you didn't think were possible. To give hope, to give life, and all of these things. And We're never going to tire of thinking and meditating and singing about this, are we? He is a savior. But it's also important to understand that when we're reading about Jesus and, and and we're, we're studying his life. He's not just a savior to, his, to us. He's also a model, an example of godly humanity. The ultimate human in many ways. In every way, I should say. And I suppose you can think of it a bit like this. That when you become a Christian, when you, when you decide, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus and be part of this, this family. It's a little bit like how you know, an asylum seeker or a refugee might find might find a place in a new nation. And they may have fled from a far country, from danger. And everything about their life is now changed because they have crossed a threshold. 
They may be given new identity papers, a new passport, new nationhood, new nationality, new sense of hope, new protections, and all the things that are given to them because they have made this transition. But if you then, taking this analogy further, if you were then to fail to learn the language and to understand the customs and the fashions and to integrate into the new nation of which you are a part, then you would find after time that you would feel increasingly isolated, possibly more lonely, maybe even a growing sense of resentment over time. And in your crazier moments, you might dream of the life you had before. Even if you fled a war zone or a dangerous country or a place of abject poverty, there may have been things that you pined for because you're neither here nor there. And you never fully kind of set your life into the new thing. And I think for many people, the Christian life can be a bit like that. That you, you think of Jesus as a savior, so you become a Christian. And you're saved, and you recognize his power in your life. But for whatever reason, your growth is stunted. You fail to learn the new language. You fail to, um, to change in, in the ways that are necessary to conform your life to Christ. And the result for people, for Christians, and potentially for you, if that is true of you, is that you will discover over time that you feel increasingly miserable because you're, you're not here and you're not there. There was a certain pleasure in the life without Christ, even if it was at the, at the bottom of it there was despair. But at least you could enjoy the things you were doing to some extent. And now you're a Christian and you feel guilty about everything. And you feel that the voice of the Holy Spirit is, 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 uh, is convicting you of the things that you're not changing in. And you feel like a fraud when you're among other Christians. And of course, none of this has to be a continuing problem for you, but it just underlines the fact that to experience the fullness of flourishing, it's not only vital that you understand that Jesus is your Savior, who kind of welcomes you into this new family, but also that then you, you kind of fall down at his feet, as it were, and acknowledge him as the master of your life. And you say, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, which means I'm, I'm a learner. And the learning is not just intellectual learning. It's not just to, to have book learning and to understand the doctrines about Jesus. In fact, in many ways, it almost comes secondary in the Bible because the learning that Christ imparted to his disciples was primarily practical teaching. It was the invitation to conform your life to the model of himself, to walk in his steps. That's what it meant to be a disciple, didn't it? It said, you see him as your master and everything about him you want to copy and imitate. Which is why the theme of imitation is very, very um, present in the New Testament. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he's saying, I'm laying before you a kind of visible model of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So you can copy me because you can trust that I'm seeking to copy Jesus. And friend, as we are progressing through this gospel, I want to encourage you to make it your aim, not just to hear, but to obey. And to walk in the very steps that Christ walks in, as far as it's possible, and by the the grace that he gives you to do that. Now, I want us to look at this passage through that particular understanding in that particular lens today. And I want us to ask the question, why is this moment, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes on him and he's tempted and then he begins to preach. Why is this particular moment so crucial for us to learn from? And the reason is because the life of Jesus is 
Of course, it spanned the 33 years on earth, but the three years which Mark records here were the most important of those years. And they're bookended by two events. At the end of those three years, there's his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. The kind of climax of everything. The turning point in history. But at the beginning of those three years, Jesus' baptism is a marking point. It's a, it's a crucial moment in the journey of the life of Christ. And it's so crucial, in fact. You remember how after Jesus is betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, and the early church, they have the, the 11 apostles now, they're supposed to be 12. And they go searching around and they ask the question, well, who's going to replace Judas so that we can have 12 again? And the criteria that they put on the table, and this is in Acts chapter 1 at the very start of the book of Acts, the criteria they put on the table is this. They say, we need to find somebody who's been with us from, from the day that Jesus was baptized to his ascension into heaven. In other words, that they've, they've been present around these three years, beginning with his baptism. And there's something very significant about the baptism of Jesus and the events that happen just here in this, this moment without which you cannot understand everything that happens later. And I think it comes down to this. And this is what I want you to grasp for yourself today. That this is the moment in which Christ, his whole life becomes consecrated to God for service to God. It's not that he didn't offer himself to God prior to that. But this is the moment in which he voluntarily steps up. And which God begins to take hold of him for the purpose for which he, he'd been put on the earth. It's pivotal in his own life and ministry. And I think the pattern of what you see in Jesus' life here is also something that I'm going to say to you must be imitated in all of our lives. That we must walk in these exact same steps so that we can also be useful to God. So that we can be consecrated for service. That's the way that I want us to look at this and understand what's going on today. So we don't understand anything of Christ's life until we get this. It's a bit like those, um, you know, those, um, the comic book movies, which I, I love them. And they, you have every now and then the origin stories, don't you? We, the questions begin to be answered. How did Wolverine get his adamantium skeleton? It's a great question, isn't it? How did it happen? You know, guys are not born with metal skeletons. It's an extraordinary thing. And... Um, can I get one too? That's another next question. Um, how did Wolverine get it? How did Batman come to dress up like a bat and not just for Halloween? Like, what is his obsession with these things? And so these origin stories really give you a window into the whole of everything that happens later. And it's the same with Jesus. In fact, Mark, Mark so underlines this that he actually ignores everything that's happened before now. He's not particularly interested in Jesus' birth. He's not interested in Mary and Joseph. He's not interested in Jesus as a child. All these things the other gospel writers take an interest in. He says, he just... Jesus just arrives on the scene now, and this is the origin story which, which Mark wants you to get, and which, if you understand this, these things about Christ, then you can imitate him and walk in these same steps so that you too, like Jesus, can have a life that is consecrated to God. And so I want to show you, I want to look at it through that particular lens, and we're going to consider these, the main things that happen in these few verses. And here's the first one, that Jesus here, at the commencement of his ministry, he settled the question of ownership, who owned his life. Who we belong to. And the same must be true for you. That you have to know who you belong to if your life is to be of service to God. And it begins, I see that here in this first verse. In those days that he says he came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why did Jesus get baptized? 
It was not, obviously, for cleansing from sin. Jesus is the sinless one. No accusation sticks when it comes to Jesus. Of course, he was identifying with sinners. There's an element of that in which he's saying, I'm willing to step into the, the place of, of the sinner so that he could bear our sin on the cross. But I actually, that's not the reason Jesus gives when he explains why he's being baptized. Because John asked him the very question in Matthew's gospel. He says, well, how can I be baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus puts it like this. He says it all comes down to obedience. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus wanted everything about his life to be an expression of complete, total, and, and unhesitating obedience to the living God. Marked particularly by his baptism. Why is baptism so significant to that? Because baptism isn't just an isolated event that happens in your life. Baptism is the strongest possible statement that you now belong to God. That the entirety of your life is consecrated to him, offered to him. For him to do with as he pleases. It is a statement saying, I belong to you. This element of knowing that you belong to God when you, are, when you become a Christian and when you are then baptized is a symbol of that. It's present throughout the New Testament, but I think particularly of the verse in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, and he's exhorting people towards purity of life. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. If you were baptized, you're not your own anymore. Now, this obviously has massive significance for people who are considering Christianity. Because a lot of people look at Christianity and they think, well, because so much of what we see as is, is, is Christian faith in, in our context is very half-hearted and moderate. It's very sensible. It's very British. It's very um, polite and, and uh, sort of obeys the rules of British etiquette, doesn't it? So much of what we see as Christianity is like that in our day. And so people have come to believe the idea that you can kind of be a little bit Christian. And that that may be your assumption. You may say you're a Christian, but you know it's in name only. It's nominal. That's what it means to be in name only. Obviously, if you've read the New Testament, that isn't the case. When you read what Jesus said about what it means to be a disciple, it is something radical. Remember the word radical means to go to the roots. To become a Christian, to belong to Jesus, to be baptized in his name, is an event in your life that goes to the roots of you. And in many ways that might come across as somewhat off-putting to those of you who are not Christian. Because you recognize that it's the biggest possible decision you could make in your life. And it is. I completely agree with that. But that's why it's also so exciting. Because it means the potential for what God can do with you is almost unlimited, isn't it? If you were just dabbling with faith and dabbling with spirituality, it's never really going to make much of a difference, is it, in the long term? To be baptized is to say, I belong to God. I belong to you, Jesus. Now, of course, this isn't just important for those of you who are not Christians. It's also important for all of us who, who, who have been baptized, who belong to Jesus. Because, friends, 
Ask yourself, why is it that you so often struggle? Why do you lose heart? Why do you lose momentum in the Christian life so frequently? And the answer is not because you don't know what to do. It's not because you, you have a lack of, of, of knowing what the godly life should look like. Usually the reason people lose heart and lose momentum in the Christian life is because they forget who they are. That knowledge hasn't settled in the deepest part of you that you are not your own anymore, that you belong to God. And every Christian should be able to look back and say, well, if I was baptized, most of you have been. Like Jesus, you have begun, you began to be consecrated to God in a way that has a hold on you even to this moment. And I want to exhort you to recover what potentially you lost if you've forgotten the love that you had at first? What was it that compelled you to give your life to God in, in the, those early days? Have you forgotten those things? God wants you to rekindle that love, to re-offer your life to him. You can never do that too many times. It may be the case you only get baptized once, but every day you're called to offer your life to him with that same sentiment, that same desire, that same passion to say, I belong to you, God. And I want to invite you to do that. It may be today you need to make a, neat, a recommitment to God. Hold that thought. I'd love to pray with you at the end. This is the first thing. He settles the question of ownership here in a pivotal moment of baptism. Here's the second. He, he receives the power that he needs from God for what's to follow. And the implication for you, of course, is that you have to be infilled with God's spirit to be of use to the Lord. To do anything for him. And so we see, just as he's baptized, as he offers his life to God, what happens? It says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Here we have what I think is probably one of the most encouraging things about the life and ministry of Jesus. And we need to understand this through this question. How is it that Jesus was able to live as he did? How is it that when you read the life of Christ, you see someone who was pure, who was passionate for God, who was courageous, who didn't shrink from obedience, who had mighty influence and impact on the people around him and changed the world? How did he do all of those things? And the instinctive answer that we always jump to, I think, in our minds at least, is we think, well, because he was the son of God. And of course... Of course he was. But the Bible tells us that in taking upon himself humanity, he never lost his divinity. But it says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. There's a sense in which he, he had to live this life as a man. And so voluntarily lays aside so many aspects of his divinity. He had to be born and grow up and learn things the same way you and I do. He had to study the scriptures. He didn't have a download from God. It wasn't transferred on a memory stick. He had to be diligent in the reading of them. He had to, he had to learn intimacy with the Father through daily prayer. He had to do everything that you and I are called to do because he had to do it as a man. And you cannot understand any of that without recognizing that he had to do it also by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is so crucial and so encouraging, friends. In fact, you know, we were, a few weeks ago, we were looking at some of the prophecies about Jesus, and Jeremy was preaching from Isaiah, 
and the, the passage about the suffering servant. And he's mentioned all the way through that prophetic book of Isaiah. And a number of times he says this, this man who would come would be filled with God's Holy Spirit. For example, in Isaiah 11, he says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And you remember how in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in his hometown, he says he opens the scroll and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And the passage that he read was this, uh, these verses from Isaiah 61. Famous verses where it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn and so on. Now, here's what I'm trying to stress for you, friends. Why is this so vital to grasp? Because you might think, you might look at Christ's life and you think, well, it is impossible for me to change, to grow, to obey, to be used by God. And when I look at Jesus, I am not encouraged. I am rather crushed by his perfection and how far short I fall of, of the model that he set for us. I remember one of the first times, I don't really do it anymore, but I used to do um, the park run, you know, the five-kilometer park run in Burgess Park I used to go to. One of the first times I went there, um, it was massively, massively disappointing um, because I was, I was halfway around the course. And I heard this strange sound, like a bleating, almost like sheep behind me. And, uh, you know, two and a half kilometers in, I saw, this sound was gaining on me. And eventually, you know, you don't really want to turn around when you're running, but eventually I managed to catch a glimpse of what was going on. To, to see a man with a double pushchair, not just a single one, a double pushchair, with two children in it. And he sailed past me and, 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 and finished the race well ahead of me. And it was... It was utterly crushing because he just seemed, to me in that moment, he seemed superhuman. He had a CrossFit t-shirt on, um, obviously, you know, obviously dedicated to his body in ways that must have bordered on idolatry and <laughs> the worship of self. But, um, but yeah, the bottom line was he beat me and uh, he beat me by a long way. And, you know, in those moments when you see something un- unattainable example, you can be crushed by that. And if, if it were the case that Jesus came onto the scene and just, he lived the perfect life by virtue of his divinity, then you would think, well, that's an unattainable model. But the fact that he lived this life by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit who is upon him, the same Holy Spirit who's given to us when you become a Christian and when you open your life up to God, the same power, it means that you and I are called and, and equipped to walk in the same steps that Jesus is called, was called and equipped to walk in. I don't know if there's anything more encouraging than that in terms of the practice of the Christian life. It means, friends, that when you know that, you are going to begin to hunger for the more, more of God's Spirit in your life. Paul says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says elsewhere in Galatians, walk by the Spirit. It seems to me that the way Paul understood a relationship with the Holy Spirit is something that can grow or diminish. Something that you can consciously rely upon him or you can walk away from him. That you can either, as he puts it, sow to the Spirit and so reap life or you can sow to the flesh and so reap destruction. In other words, there's so much in our power in terms of the daily experience of the practice of the Christian life 
as to whether we draw on this strengthening and empowering that comes from God to live and to walk by the presence and power that he gives to you. Are you a person who walks by the Spirit? You must be filled with his power. So we see this pattern in Christ's life. He's consecrated to God in in belonging to him in baptism. He's filled with the Spirit of God. And then a third thing happens. He's refined by temptation. Immediately he's refined by the temptations that are thrown at him. And I suppose the main point you must understand here is that you must be tempted to be useful to God. You must experience testing, I should say, to emerge as somebody who's more useful to God. In verse 12 and 3, it says that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Why, why does God allow you to face temptations, and I guess that question is particularly a burning one if you feel that you're constantly meeting with failure in your life. Why, why does God allow it? And maybe it's easier for us to begin with the question, why did, why did Jesus have to face temptations? I think possibly it's easier to begin there, and I think the answer, I'm sure there's many aspects to answering that question, but the answer I want you to understand is that I think you can look at the course of history up to this point as God almost running a sequence of experiments. You know how um, it's said of Thomas Edison, true or not, but it's taken from a number of the quotes of his interviews with him that he'd had thousands of uh, attempts at making a light bulb, certainly thousands of ideas of how to do it. And you can imagine him running through experiment after experiment and every time they construct a new, a new prototype with a different gas or a different, a different um, element, then you can imagine them saying, okay, switch it on, let's see what happens. And failure after failure, as light bulb, bulbs explode and all, just switch, don't light up or whatever happens. And if, until eventually, of course, they land on the right, the right mixture, the right inert gas, and filament is correct. And in a way, when you're reading the Bible, you kind of see, you kind of see this pattern. It begins with Adam. It's like the prototype of humanity. And then sadly, he's an abysmal failure in that he, like all of us, steps into sin. You also see it embodied in the whole nation of Israel, that they are sort of, they embody a kind of a chosenness, but then they, are, they immediately fail. The minute God liberates them from, from slavery into Egypt and the they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years in failure and idolatry and all the kind of mess that they get themselves into. And also, all through the Bible, you just see this incredibly honest portrayal of humanity. It is amazing how much mess there is in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's one of the things, for me, that validates their authenticity because there's never really an attempt to whitewash these men and women. And even the greatest of them. And you think, well, who, who towers above the rest in biblical history? And you can think of Characters like Moses and Abraham and David, and all of them have their flaws. David especially, right? Incredibly flawed. And it's like, again and again, it's like, okay, switch it on. Let's see what happens. Failure. Of course, it's not that God was, is like a grand experimenter. There's a plan at work. Until, of course, you get to Jesus. And Jesus has to step into the same scenarios that his forerunners stepped into. He has to encounter the same trials, temptations, 
And eventually, a new model of humanity emerges, a kind of humanity 2.0, who's said to be the head of a new race. Why did God want to prove him in this way? Because the whole story of the Bible is the awaiting of a savior who would be able to bear on his shoulders the responsibility for humankind. And no one to this point qualified. And the thing that would qualify him would be his purity. His submission to God in trust and obedience and his refusal to capitulate to the lure of temptation and the lies of the devil. And here we see Jesus emerging for us as a kind of a new Adam. The second Adam he's called in the Bible. Because whereas Adam faced temptation and the whole human race fell into sin, this man faces temptation, emerges victorious, and then leads a new race of humanity into the things of God. He's also a kind of a new Israel. It's interesting, isn't it, how... Well, just, it's interesting to me, actually, about the Adam thing. How he's found here with the wild animals and the angels ministering to him. In other words, the place of authority that Adam lost in the garden when he was supposed to be having dominion over the entirety of creation, and he lost that place of authority, it's now reinstituted with the second Adam, Jesus. The animals and the angels submit and surrender to this, this new man. And where Israel failed, here's Jesus reliving the journey of Israel. Instead of wandering for 40, days in the, in 40 years in the wilderness as they did, he has 40 days and he emerges through it as one who is able to bear the calling and the promises of God on his shoulders in a way that his nation never could. So you see him coming through, bursting through history as the man who would champion, be our champion and be our hero. And this is the relevance for you, friends. All of this was necessary for Christ to bear the weight of the calling that God would put on him. And so for you, God has a purpose in your temptations. And I think the aim, one of the aims is that you would emerge a refined, strengthened, and more useful person. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials or temptations, tests. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying this. The reason God puts you through the fire, the reason you experience suffering, which often occasions sin, doesn't it? Because we feel sorry for ourselves. Or the reason why you face temptation, which is a very sharpened form of suffering in this life, and one that we'll not face in the life to come. The reason why you are put through the fire is because God has put within you the potential to emerge with a faith that he says here is more precious than gold. Gold that perishes in the fire. He says you could emerge a refined person. Remember the proverb says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. In other words, God uses fire just as the metalsmith uses fire to bring about purity, to scrape off the dross and to have a pure element. 
God's, God uses that in your life. And you, the reason why you are being battered by successive temptations is because God has put it within you, the potential to emerge through them a renewed person. It's not to be an excuse to fall into sin. It's rather to give you hope that God wants you to change and be released from the sins that dog you and which trip you up repeatedly. What if you keep failing? Well, thankfully, that's also why God gave us Jesus. Here he is, succeeding where you and I consistently seem to fail, don't we? That's one thing I can say. But another is this. God hasn't given up on you. God is drawing you through the same sort of experiences of Christ. You, you know you belong to him. That was what your baptism was about. You've been given his spirit. Now here's the next thing. You must now emerge through the fires of temptation. And I suppose the more fire you go through, perhaps the sharper the edge will be when, you are, when you're changed. You think about how the best steel, the steel that's been in the fire repeatedly and hammered and potentially layered like Japanese steel, Multiple layers, multiple exposure to the furnace, multiple beatings with the hammer. It can feel like that in the Christian life, can't it? It's like more fire, more beatings, and eventually you come through and you're, you're not just a dull blade that's going to crack and break on the first exposure to anything like um, spiritual warfare. You are, you are honed, you are sharpened. And this is, all, this is what Christ was experiencing, in a sense, except that he didn't fail. And it's what you and I have to walk through to be of use to, the, to God. Your temptations have a purpose. And God wants you to change. He wants you to give, have hope that you can change, actually. Here's the last thing we see about Jesus. And it's almost the culmination of everything that I've been saying so far. All of it led to this moment where he began his ministry. It's like he went through all the initiatory phases and then his ministry begins. And the same for you. You must begin to walk in the purpose that God has for you on earth. You see how in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As far as we know, the first sermon he ever preached. And it comes after everything we've been describing so far. That's what I want you to understand. Because that's the pattern that God wants to work in your life also. And this moment of this much shorter than mine sermon, this moment marks history. Centuries of prophetic expectation. The series that we were working through before the Mark's Gospel, centuries of prophetic expectation was leading to this moment. The entirety of Jesus' life, the 30 years of his growing up on earth, was leading to this moment. And in fact, the preceding things we've just been seeing, of his baptism and his filling with the Spirit and of his temptations and the tests that God put him through, all of that was leading to this moment when it would commence. It's almost like, it's almost like how an athlete can prepare their entire life. 20, 25, 30 years. Honing. Being readied. For What? For an instant when the starter's gun would bang. And Jesus was ready for that moment. What does it mean for you? Well, let me speak to you if you're not a Christian and then if you are. If you are not, I want you to listen to what Jesus is saying here. This is the most important thing you could hear today. 
when he says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Actually, the, the basic message of Christianity is unchanging. That's it. God has a particular rule. He's a king. That's what his kingdom is about. It's his rule. And his rule is here. It's present. And you can submit to it or not. And to submit to it actually is to acknowledge that Jesus is king. You saw earlier the verse when God's voice comes from heaven saying about Christ, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. To be a Christian actually is just to agree with what God says about Jesus. To recognize that he is the son of God. To recognize that he lived the life that was pleasing to God. The life, the perfect life instead of you. Because you and I cannot live that life. So that he could bear the weight of your sin on the cross. So that he could be qualified to do that. To, uh, to be a Christian is to see this. And friend, if you, if you don't believe in Jesus yet, if you've not given your life to him yet, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying here when he says the time has come. And it may be the case for you, your time has come. It may be today, your time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent means you've got to turn from the life that you were living before. Believe means you now need to trust in Jesus as your savior. And of course, with it is everything I've been describing up to this point. You give your life to him in its entirety, without hesitation, without holding back. And of course, there's a battle at work there. We all sympathize. You have to be convinced that you'll gain more than you lose. And if you think that you're ready for it, I would love to pray with you. If you think you need to know more and understand more, Friends, keep coming to church. Come to our salt course, which is happening Wednesday nights. We want to explore these things with you. But let me just close by speaking to those of you who are Christians. As much as we need to listen to what Jesus is saying, I, we're kind of taking a step back from that today. And I, I want you to think about what he's doing here. Because the purpose of life, his life, was unleashed in this moment when he begins to serve God. And the same is, can be true for you. The whole purpose of his consecration to God, of his offering of himself in baptism, of him being filled with the Spirit, of him emerging through the refining fires of temptation, is that he might be of use in the kingdom. And of course he's of use in a way that he's the archetypal man, he's the ultimate man. And he achieves more than you or I could ever achieve. However, he privileges us with the calling of being a part of the very same thing that he was involved in of the spread of his kingdom and of his mission on the earth. So I want to close by asking you a few questions. Have you settled the question of ownership? Can you say to me without hesitation, if you call yourself a Christian, God is in charge of my life? Does your baptism still have that meaning for you? Do you need to recommit your life to him today? I would urge you to do it without even a pause. Are you seeking his indwelling presence? Are you seeking to foster the intimacy with the spirit that is yours by birthright of being a Christian? Do you need to come to him again afresh and open your hands and say, God, I need more of your spirit today? Are you facing temptations that you must overcome? We feel our weakness, don't we, in life, and the frustration of living in this body and of being unable to, 
to fully master its impulses and our desires and our, our emotions and everything that leads us into sin? Are you facing temptations that you need to overcome? Friend, I'd love for you to have fresh hope today. Understanding even of what God is up to in your life. He wants to make you sharper. So your testimony on the other side of this will be, God is better than any of that. And now, are you ready? Are you, are you ready as Jesus was, as he commenced his mission, as he began to preach the gospel? Are you ready to be of service to God? Is your life offered up to him in its purpose, in its mission, its intent, its focus? Are you here to do his bidding and his will and to fulfill his kingdom agenda? Or are you, have you not begun that yet? This is the pattern we see in Christ's life as a consecrated man, offered up to God as a living sacrifice. And it's what he wants of every Christian. This is, not, this is absolutely not for unique and special Christians, as though there was such a thing. This is what Jesus wants of all of us. What he invites you into, the privilege of living for God and not for yourself. 